It's my privilege to introduce my friend Willie Jennings, who's our next speaker today. Um, I don't like self-referential introductions. I've complained about that to a number of people, but I'm going to make an exception today. Uh, I first met Willie when we were members of a ste steering committee that created the Reform Theology and History group in the AAR. Neither of us have continued our association with that, but we were there at the beginning. So that was like 1991. Yeah, so it's been a long time. Willie Jennings is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School. His well-known book, The Christian Imagination, Theology, and the Origins of Race, won the American Academy of Religion Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion in the Constructive Reflective category the year that it first appeared. And in, nine, in 2015, it also earned him the Gravemeyer Award in Religion, the largest prize for a theological work in North America. Englewood Review of Books has called that work a theological masterpiece. Willie is nearing completion of a popular commentary on the book of Acts entitled Acts, a Commentary, the Revolution of the Intimate for the Belief Series published by Westminster John Knox. And in addition, he's working on a major monograph provisionally entitled Unfolding the World, Recasting the Christian Doctrine of Creation. The other thing I think Willie would want you to know is he's an ordained Baptist minister. <laughs> and he has pastored, has considerable pastoral experience, and considers to be a pastor to his students. Willie, welcome to our podium. I want to... Uh... Thank Bruce for that wonderful introduction. It is um, a joy to be here. I want to thank him and Paul and especially Kate for putting on this marvelous, marvelous um, conference. Whoever thought we would have done a conference on Karl Barth Liberation Theology. I am, I am thrilled, thrilled beyond measure to be here and to be a part and to be a part of this. Um, I'd like to, if I may, dedicate this, um, I'm looking for my bottle of water. Uh, I'd like, if I may, dedicate this, um, this lecture to the memory <clears throat> of Dr. James Hal Cohn. I met, I met Dr. Cohn for the first time in 19... The spring of 1984. <laughs> Somebody said, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a little while ago. <laughs> I, was, uh, I was a senior at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, a group of us took a, took a uh, van down to Atlanta, Georgia, where the Black Mennonite Association, there was a Black Mennonite Association. The Black Mennonite Association was having a conference on black theology. And we heard lectures from Vincent Harding, lectures from Gerard Wilmore, lectures from William R. Jones. If you don't know these names, please look them up. William R. Jones. And the, the, the week of lectures ended with a lecture from this skinny gentleman with a big afro and a high-pitched voice. And he came, to the, he came to the podium, he stood there, and he had just, he had just finished his uh, book, For My People. 
his book, God of the Oppressed, had been out for a little while. He had just finished his book, For My People, and for the next hour or so, he was spellbinding. He pulled no punches. He critiqued the black church. He critiqued the white church. He critiqued white theologians. He critiqued black theologians. He even critiqued himself. <laughs> this, was, this was the first moment he started to talk about how he had not paid sufficient attention to black women and women's voices. And as I listened to this, this man talk, I thought, not that I want to be a theologian. I thought, I have to be a theologian. James Cone helped to, to pull my call into theology into existence at that very moment. And I will always be thankful for James Hal Cone. In, in 1976, in the flowering years of liberation theology, the Latin American theologian Juan Luis Segundo wrote that important book, The Liberation of Theology, a beautiful and prescient play on those words. And in this crucial text, he asked the question, what will remain of liberation theology in the coming years? Segundo declared that the process of thinking theology in terms of liberation was irreversible. But it was not yet clear in 1976 what effect liberationist thought would have on classical theology and the internal structures of the church, by which he meant the Catholic Church and Catholic theology. It wasn't clear because he saw strong opposition to liberation theology in the Western Academy and in the church. Segundo suggested that the way to take on that opposition, that opposition to liberation theology, was to focus on epistemology. He meant by that focus on, what he didn't mean by that focus on epistemology was philosophical discussions of epistemology. He meant discerning what ways of knowing theologically were connected to actual liberation. Segundo was already in 1976 anticipating what Walter Mignolo would much later call decoloniality. Decoloniality as most of us now know, is the process of disconnecting or delinking from Western hierarchical structures of knowing and their ways of forming what counts as legitimate knowledge. Those epistemic structures render inconsequential ways of knowing and knowledges from the global South and its formerly colonized peoples, formerly colonized subjects. In fact, we should, in all honesty, narrate liberation theology as a movement within the decolonial movement where formerly colonized peoples have rejected their position as outsiders to truth, rationality, and intellectual life. 
They reject not only their position as outsiders to the first world, that is, the imagined central world, they also reject the idea that the center of human existence, the zero point of historical consciousness, is found in the West and in its language systems, appropriated Greek and Latin, and the six modern European languages, Spanish, Portuguese, English, French, German, and Dutch. Decolonialists, let's call them, decolonialists reject the paradigm of global superiority inferiority calibrated by the global north, and they seek to delink from efforts to make global south peoples acceptable to the north through various forms of assimilation, political, intellectual, social, economic, and religious. This is a rejection, as we all know, that is still being worked out in so many places and among so many people. Liberation theology, as a movement within decoloniality, focused the nature of knowledge in a different way. Liberation theologians did not simply invite us to deepen our critical focus on the person who knows before we focus on what is known, a la Kant. Liberationists invited us to focus on the places from which we know and who we are in and of those places of the earth as we know. And from this focus, from this focus, the idea of contextuality emerged as a central part of modern theological reflection. But generations of theologians living in the aftermath of, lib of liberation theology forgot something very important, that contextuality was simply a conceptual placeholder for thinking theology from the real world, the real world realities of poverty, oppression, and violence, especially as those realities encircled formerly colonized peoples. Unfortunately, contextuality soon took the form in Western theology of a placid situatedness, articulated in that useless dictum we all learned in seminary and some, some places is still being said, that useless dictum that we all do theology from a particular place, a particular social location or perspective. Liberation theologians unearthed something far more important, far more important than that silly dictum. They brought to the surface a particular kind of knowing subject, one we all know so well, white, male, heterosexual, European, Christian, Protestant or Catholic, and capitalist. And these theologians unearth processes of formation of subjectivities energized by and encircling that knowing subject. But liberation theologians also surfaced a long-standing problem, a long-standing problem in Western theology since the emergence of colonial modernity. That is the way Western theology dismissed and eradicated, both those words, dismissed and eradicated the ways of knowing and the forms of knowledge of non-Western and indigenous peoples. 
So liberation theology placed on the table two forms of questioning, two forms of questioning that remain an urgent matter for Christian theology at this moment. The first, the first form of questioning has to do with the possibility of reframing theology apart from the dominant Western knowing subject. Is it possible to imagine and enact a knowing subject not tightly woven together as white, male, heterosexual, European, Christian, and capitalist, and who forms a subject position for knowing that is relentlessly imperial? Is it possible to disentangle processes of subjectivity formation, educational, social, gendered, economic, cultural, from the energy and the intellectual inertia of that white, masculinist, knowing subject. The second form of questioning that has to do, has to do with the possibility of entering non-Western and indigenous ways of knowing and the knowledges of formerly colonized peoples. Is it possible to recognize and learn from within the alternative epistemologies of those who have been excluded, excluded from the rights, R-I-T-E-S, the rights of instruction in Western education. This would mean not learning new things from different peoples, but reframing what it means to know, to learn, and to live with knowledge. Is it possible to reframe what a Christian knowing actually looks like? a Christian knowing actually looks like. What does a Christian who knows as a Christian and a knowing that constitutes the Christian look like? This second form of questioning isn't aiming for a Christian kind of knowing over against a non-Christian form of knowing. It seeks a decolonial possibility of knowing. The questioning seeks a Christian who knows and in their knowing, a Christian who knows and in their knowing, joins in the knowledges of other peoples. These two forms of questioning challenge us to articulate a Christian theological subject not trapped in colonialism's long centuries and its ongoing effects. This, for some people, is an impossibility. And we have to face this fact, sisters and brothers. For a growing number of people, a growing number of people, including many people of color, raised Christian, who live in overwhelmingly Christian but formally colonized context, Christianity feels like a dead end intellectually. Christianity, for some of these folks, cannot be articulated apart from its white masculinist knowing subject or apart from its historical trajectories of eradicating indigenous knowledges and non-Western ways of knowing. And of course, this brings me to Karl Barth and his theology. I've been reading Karl Barth 
for decades. And I have lived with the frustration of seeing Bart's thinking deployed to bolster precisely the white masculinist knowing subject and to have Bart's theology weaponized against indigenous knowledges and Bart himself turned into an epistemological apologist against any idea of reframing what a Christian knowing looks like. I'm frustrated, not because Bart has been framed as in league with the colonialist project, because he did operate within the colonialist imaginary, as all his, or almost most of his contemporaries did. My frustration stems from the fact that too few theologians have been interested or willing to see how Barth's work did and does open up compelling possibilities for energizing a decolonial option, to quote Walter McNolo, a decolonial option from within Christian theology itself, especially from within the problems of colonialist epistemology. Now, in order to see these possibilities, we need to read Bart with Bart, and sometimes read Bart against Bart, drawing Bart to his more enlightened sensibilities. Let's use that language. So, in this presentation, I want to highlight two possibilities that place Bart squarely with the decolonial epistemologists. That's why the title of this Bart Among the Decolonial Epistemologists. Those aiming to overcome colonialism's epistemic regime. The first is Barth's framing of the knowledge of God as non-accumulating and therefore non-commodifiable. And the second is the way Barth invites us to think totality against hegemonies. The second the second possibility, or we, we can see the first possibility in paragraph 27 in his Doctrine of God. And the second possibility comes later in Barth's wonderful intellectual sojourn as he articulates his Doctrine of Providence in paragraph 49. Some of you have heard me talk a bit about some of these things, but I'm going to put them together now for the first time. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> The first possibility emerges out of Barth's thinking about knowledge of God in 38, 37, 38, 1937, 1938, after he returned to Basel and positioned himself as an intellectual, both reflecting back on the rise of Nazism and keenly watching its political and theological machinations. Paragraph 27 is less about the limits of knowledge and much more about an ecology of knowledge. It is Barth's explica explication of that simple but profound idea that God is known only through God. As he ended paragraph 26, we find him reflecting on the problem of natural theology with German racial nationalism fully in view. Here, Barth's famous way, his famous way of connecting who we claim God to be with nationalist slash cultic self-understandings, that is, the operation of a natural theology bound to cultural nationalisms, has been used to dismiss indigenous ways of knowing, seeing such ways of knowing as new forms of natural theology. 
remember having professors, when any time I would want to raise questions about indigenous ways of knowing, they would always trot Bart out and trot out this particular idea. This, however, has always been a very bad form of conceptual mapping. Let me just be clear about that. Very bad form of conceptual mapping. One that does not reckon with the, the possessive logics that formed in the colonial theater and turned peoples and all that they are and all that they know into commodity form, bound to them as property. Knowledge understood as possession, that is obtained through forms of mastery, is the deeper problem that constitutes the problem of a natural theology. The strange arguments for and against a natural theology that have grown over the century comes, centuries come directly out of colonial soil. While not attuned to this deeper problem, Bart was tracking the problem of knowledge possession and mastery indirectly, quite beautifully. For Bart, we constantly misunderstand possession of knowledge as it relates to God. Bart states the following, we are masters of what we can apprehend. Viewing and conceiving certainly mean encompassing, and we are superior to and spiritually masters of what we can encompass. In this sense, we are masters of the world and everything in it, in spite of the enigmatic quality and superior power which we apparently encounter in them. For the apparent infinite, infinite, infinite of the world is in fact limited by the finite, just as the apparent finite is limited by the infinite, absolute and relative, being for itself and being in itself are dialectical and interchangeable concepts. Their contradiction is always already overcome and mastered in ourselves, so that theoretically and practically it can always be overcome and mastered. But God is not one whom we can dialectically encompass. We are not master of God. And for this reason, we cannot apprehend him of ourselves. Let me put it another way, Bart says. We are originally and properly one with what we can apprehend. To apprehend certainly means to possess. But there is no possession without original and proper unity between the possessor and the possessed. Upon this unity rests the secret of our capacity to apprehend in this or that way, the world and what is in it. But between God and man, there is no such unity. Creation by God, even the creation of man, means the institution of an existence really distinct from the existence of God. Between God and man, as between God and the creature in general, there consists an irrevocable otherness. Because this is so, because the mystery of unity underlying all our other apprehension does not exist here. We cannot conceive God of ourselves. So we can hear, end of quote, so we can hear from this quote that Bart is not against the possibilities of knowledge accumulation or possession of knowledge. In fact, Bart assumes as the normal state of affairs a colonially conditioned vision of natural knowledge possession. But his reflections here and throughout this paragraph raise the crucial question of what is the character 
of theological knowledge accumulation. For Bart, our knowledge of God does not accumulate in the sense of a colonial episteme. Indeed, Bart's vision of knowledge of God thwarts the operation of a colonial logic of knowledge possession, even as he normalizes such logics. Now, here we have to read Bart against Bart. Bart the theologian against Bart the European epistemologist, or more precisely, Bart's doctrine of God against a colonial form of knowledge possession. Bart is stating an ecology of knowledge, natural knowledge that he assumes holds for the way knowledge possession accumulation constitutes human self-knowledge, self-awareness, even consciousness in the Hegelian sense. Our knowledge accumulation leads us into self-awareness, and we now understand historically, I hope, how deeply chauvinistic and colonialist such a European vision of knowledge accumulation has been when enacted through processes of possession, of commodification, and most importantly, of land seizure. Yet, Bart draws such a Eurocentric ecology of knowledge to its limit precisely at the knowledge of God and indeed even self-knowledge. Again, quoting Bart, 2 one page 191. The beginning of our knowledge of God, of this God, is not a beginning which we can make with him. It can only be the beginning which he has made with us. The sufficiency of our thought form and of the perception presupposed in it and of the world form based on it collapses altogether in relation to this God. Of ourselves, we do not resemble God. Again, he says these same words. We are, we are not masters of God. We are not one with God. We are not capable of conceiving him. This beginning of which Bart speaks collapses a possessive vision of knowledge where mastery is the goal. It is an epistemological beginning that collaborates deeply with a decolonial option for a new ecology of knowing. For Bart, what will be said and known about God, what will be said and known about God, will be formed at the site, S-I-T-E, at the site of a relationship, of a life together in which our collective self-knowledge is always interrupted by the intervention of God's own self-knowledge. God knowing God's self in the midst of our knowing ourselves and our knowing of ourselves always being mediated by and with God's self-knowing. What must be said of knowledge of God must also be said of what it means to know in response to a colonial history of epistemological violence and oppression. For the Christian, what we know is first a matter, first a matter of who we know with in lives joined together. A procedure, if you will, of knowing God forms in this way in a shared ecology of knowledge, beginning precisely in the interception of colonialist forms of Christian knowledge. Of course, this then brings me 
to a second possibility suggested by Barth's thought. And that is Barth's way of thinking totality against hegemony. Barth's thinking against totality really emerges from 1948 on. The Barth of 1948 witnesses a world entering a new sense of agency. 1948 is the high time for the idea of the human, the humitas, and a thoroughgoing anthropocentrism. World War II ends and a new political and social egoism begins, born of the proliferation of nationalisms, the dropping of the atomic bomb, the creation of the nation state of Israel, the emergence of the east-west divide, and the slow beginning sounds of the subaltern the formerly colonized subjects speaking back to empire, calling attention to themselves as selves, as selves, and not echoes of colonial powers. Bart, also like so many others, had not begun to process seriously what it meant to have non-Western Christian theological interlocutors. Few theologians were connecting the dots between that presence and the push for national independence in so many European colonies. Indonesia and Vietnam in 1945, the Philippines, 1946, India and Pakistan, 1947, Burma, Kailan, Korea, Malaysia, 1948, and China, 1949, and a host of others as we entered the 1950s. Equally missed was the problem of the emergence of the Jewish state and its geopolitical significance in light of the ideological currents of the East-West divide. Bart was, however, processing the totalizing visions of life that were emerging at this moment. And within his doctrine of providence, he articulated the problems of those visions. Here is the crucial question. How do you articulate a doctrine of providence at a time when the world is being pressed to exist between two powerful ways of framing time, history, and meaning? What would come to be called the Cold War was not simply a political struggle between the US and the USSR and the respective allies, but the emergence of two powerfully productive forces that constantly generated totalizing visions of how the world is and how the world should be. This side of the cold world's end, it's difficult for us, many of us here in this room, to sense the overwhelming power of this framing, a framing that permeated the Western world and especially the world of the colonial powers. Bart, like so many others, felt that framing power, yet those others who acutely felt the, 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 the framing power were not, for the most part, his theological colleagues, but formerly colonized subjects and those struggling to break free from their colonial masters. They understood, the formerly colonized subjects, they understood that East and West were not universal options for how we should see the world but the ongoing outworkings of white masculine supremacy in new, more insidious iterations. If nationalism helped to frame the US and USSR, these 
superpowers became the framers of what nationalist existence in general and human existence specifically would mean for so many people becoming nations. This is crucial for us because theological concepts and, the and theological discursive practices come to exist inside this framing. Ideas like freedom and justice and peace and security, humanity, independence, rationality, will all be calibrated by nationalist form. What I mean by this is that nationalist framing will stand as the subtext, the conceptual background for what these ideas mean in their uses in particular places and times. Bart wanted a doctrine of providence not beholden to nationalist form, but he also wanted a doctrine of providence not captured by Boltman's existentialist theological vision. Boltman's work and growing influence shadowed Bart's work after the war and right into the 1960s. Boltman, in point of fact, was a theologian perfectly fit for the 1948 moment and beyond because he, more than any other theological voice of the time, proposed a theology of framing. His genius, and we should call it genius, maybe diabolical genius, but let's call it genius. His genius was to frame biblical discourse as a constellation of ways of framing the world that authorizes us to frame the world for our own time and moment. You see, demythologizing and Cold War ideology were two sides of the same coin in what they authorized us to do. Both imagined the world outside of Western modernity as trapped in various primi prim primitivisms that needed to be translated and, if possible, transformed to collaborate with modern space and time. Now was the time, in 48 in post, now was the time of the dreaded label placed on Bart's work, Christomonism. The idea of a collapsed theological vision, especially a vision of the world, of creation, of revelation to Jesus Christ. The accusation, which may have, may have ancient analogies, suited this intellectual milieu because in 1948, quite a bit of theology, quite a bit of theology, conceived and articulated Jesus Christ not as the one who framed the world, but one who must be set within a framing of the world. Bart will resist the label, and as he said, hold fast, I quote, hold fast at all costs and at every point to the Christological thread, taking seriously the words, Christ alone. Bart, in his treatment of providence, proposed a different way to think totality, a way to think against these ways of framing. He snapshots this in just a few pages in paragraph 49, 171 to 175. Many years ago, the Marxist historian Martin Jay, who well, not enough people read anymore, you should read Martin Jay. Martin Jay wrote an important book entitled Marxism in Totality. In it, he confirmed what Ordorno Many years ago, and Frederick Jameson more recently, I should say more recent decades, what Frederick Jameson both said in different ways. 
that social critique, Marxist or otherwise, social critique requires some vision of totality, of the whole, in order to imagine a transformation of the present of systems, of institutions, or of practices, it requires an idea of how the individual and micro-realities inhere, inhere in wider systems and how those wider systems in turn form the whole. Reasserting ideas of totality, as you all remember, became an important response to intellectuals who 20 years ago began resisting the idea of totality for fear of supporting master narratives or totalizing discursive practices and, of course, hegemonies. And many of us cut our teeth reading such intellectuals who despise the idea of totality. But we can thank the growth of environmental studies and ecological reflection and colleagues who have thought very seriously about the earth, land, and animals like Brother David here, uh, for, for helping us overcome this problem. What, helping us do what Jason Moore terms enter into green thought, refocusing the idea of totality in beautiful ways. Yet the problem with the idea of totality, the idea of totality was not has not only been its negative political deployments, but, it's, but also the propagation of a terrible theological-like vision that guides those deployments. The theological vision that Bart, theological vision Bard suggests turns on misidentifying totality, what Bart calls the creaturely whole with God, God's self. Bart is not pointing to the problem of confusing the world with God but of how one articulates the importance of the whole, of totality. That articulation will inevitably always make the whole more important than any creature. It will also align God's actions with a telos that bypasses the singularity of every creature, instrumentalizing all creatures in a hierarchy of purpose. Bart recognizes that this is a counterfeit to God's ruling. But theologians, he argues, have often offered this vision of totality, collapsing the idea of a God who rules with what that rule must look like. A God that rules, articulated at the same moment when one articulates what it must look like. That is, a God whose actions are fixed only by the end game and not by the individual players. The subtlety here is very important for Bart. The creature, he says, is lowly, humbled in relation to God, but not in relation to a universal whole. The lowliness of the creature in relation to God means his exaltation. God focuses on the creature in appreciation and joy, not in contemplation, not in contemplating its or our instrumental value. But when the creature is thought about in relation to some universal whole, it will inevitably be rendered a means to an end. For Bart, we must remember, the whole itself is only a creature. It's a great lie. The whole itself is only a creature. 
This thread of an imminent frame that mistakes God and God's ways with a vision of the universal whole runs through a lot of theologies and works itself in, of course, many other things. As Bart says, and I quote, the end of the thread which begins in theology lies in the ethical sphere, the political or economic totalitarianism which has caused us so much anxiety today, both in its Western and also in its Eastern forms. The forces at work in this conception of the divine rule are the motives and logic and law of an imminent hierarchy of power and value. The articulated whole is greater and more important than its component parts. Its life is greater and more important than that of the parts. And if this is the case, then Amongst the parts themselves, there arise the further distinction between those which are more important and necessary for the whole and those which are less. The former can and perhaps will rise up and assert themselves, achieving honor and attaining their own particular ends insofar as they are advantageous to the whole. But the latter can only sink into obscurity, rendering their service to the whole at the proper time, but disappearing, but disappearing like the more, M-O-O-R, disappearing like the more when they have fulfilled their obligation. It is obvious that countless beings are in this second case, existing only to be sacrificed at the last for the life and progress of the whole and the favored few. It is all very well for those who, for the sake of the whole, belong to that earlier class, continuing as its heads and bearers and representatives to the glory of the whole. But it is impossible, it is impossible to equate this much too primitive ordering of the world and society with the divine world governance. You see, Bart, end of quote, Bart distinguishes between thinking totality raised up, sustained, and maintained by the divine governance and what he calls the unholy hierarchy of a universal collective whole. Bart's framing of totality recognizes the totalizing visions of East and West, but does so in ways that capture the broader and deeper implication of totalizing discourses, whether economic, political, theological, ecological or evolutionary. Let me just take a moment to put in a plug for a brilliant work that will soon be published by soon to be Dr. Kara Slade, who does a brilliant job talking about these very matters. So as soon as she gets her dissertation approved next week, please read it. <laughs> please read it. Just a brilliant dissertation on this very problem. For Bart, all such totalizing discourses while they claim to be aimed at the common good, in practice are merely a means to further the ends of certain favored creatures, a ruling class within this whole. Bart's understanding of totality, in contrast, grows out of his reading of the drama of scripture and shows us that the God of Israel, who watches over and cares for every living creature, is the God through which we can think totality. God walks with every living creature, loving and ruling from inside the intricacies of every life. Bart will work out his doctrine of providence from this kind of imminent frame, 
that resists forming a doctrine immediately useful for those who want a God useful to their purposes. Final quote from Bart here. For if the kingdom of his king means order, if it is therefore a kingdom of righteousness, then this means that his plan and will, his core coordinating, of all the activities and effects of all his creatures does not encroach too much upon any one of them, not one being simply used and then dropped and then trampled underfoot. I love that line. If the ruling of God consists first and foremost in his subordinating of all things to himself, this means that without prejudice to their mutual relations, he deals with each one in a direct and immediate encounter and relationship with himself. There is not one of them which his rule does not abase, but there is also not one of them which being abased by him is not exalted. There is not one of them which his rule does not co-coordinate and fuse with others into a single whole, but there is not one of them which is made only to suffer by this relationship which is not comforted and gladdened by it, seeing that God himself created it. For this is what distinguishes the totality which he raised up and sustained and maintained by the divine governance from the unholy hierarchy of a universal collective whole. It is the totality of the freedom and right of each individual. It is the totality in which each individual has to be full of its own honor. It is the totality which has its own honor in the fact that no person or thing which it comprehends or orders has simply to do its bit and then to be sacrificed. It is the totality in which each individual moves toward and is certain of its own goal, even as it serves the common goal. In this whole, there is nothing which at its own time and place and according to its own function is simply instrument, material, cannon fodder in the fulfillment of this or that development, or in the establishment of this good of the community. But in practice, then, is merely a means to further the ends of a certain favored few, a ruling class. But as each individual with its own being and activity is coordinated with all other individuals under God and according to the will and plan of God, and certainly not without the subordination and coordination, by this very fact, it has its own independent significance and validity, its own independent value and dignity, being granted that which is good, which is indeed the very best for its attaining of its own individual ends, and in this way, the common end of all individual. He, God loves and rules them, therefore, in their interdependence, in their mutual association, but on this account, God does not love and rule them any less, but to the highest degree possible in their particularity and singularity, end of quote. So, Barth's vision of totality, again, shares in the emerging decolonial sensibilities of people struggling to free themselves from their colonial masters during the 40s and 50s. Those peoples imagine themselves beyond the totalizing visions of the U.S. and the USSR and beyond the hegemonies that would emerge from that period that plotted them in the developmental, economic, intellectual, and cultural narratives of the West. Such narratives, narrative operations always hide the storytellers and demand we adhere to the story being told in order to be heard and seen as participants in the human project, to even be seen as human. 
Yet Barth's vision of totality rooted in a doctrine of providence positioned God against the storytellers. Positioned God as one who refuses the narratives that render people and even individuals as cogs in a machine, steps on the way to development, consumers, audiences, data, data users, immigrants, or human resources. Barth's vision pushes against what Bonaventura Souza Santos calls the logics of social regulation that turn every effort of emancipation toward the reestablishing of more expansive, totalizing visions of a social order. But equally important, Barth's way of thinking totality also opens up the space for a theological vision of the creaturely whole that could help to form a healthy theological subject one freed from the imperialist subjectivity so deeply woven into white Western theological formation. Liberation theologies announce the unfinished work of Christian theology even to this crucial moment. The unfinished work not only of Christian theology but of Christian discipleship. And I like to think that Bart's theological and political insights can help us know what shape that work might take. Thank you very much. <laughs>